I'd been thinking a lot about utopias living at Birdcliffe because it's, it was founded originally as, as a utopia and then also kind of questioning or critiquing the idea of a utopia even as idyllic and healing as a summering Birdcliffe has felt and I can tell you more about that in a minute. It, it's not perfect, no utopia is perfect, right? It's more of an aspirational idea and that was certainly the, the case for the founders and yet Birdcliffe lives on. It's 120 years old. It's one of the oldest continuous artist residencies in the U.S. And by many definitions, it's, it's reached a lot of the original objectives. From Bookworms in the Wild and from Spotify, I'm Howard Ultrescue, and this is my podcast where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. Before I welcome my guest, here's what I've recently read and recommend. There's more detail on my website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com. Our Town by Thornton Wilder, written in 1938. The preciousness of life and community. Classic, timeless, important, and moving. I read Our Town now in advance of reading Tom Lake by Ann Patchett who has said that the idea for her new novel came from her obsession since high school with Our Town. As Our Town's Emily observes, it goes so fast. Do any human beings ever realize life while they live it, every, every minute? A year or so ago, Carol and I saw a production of Our Town staged on the back porch of the Phoenicia Playhouse, which was really good. I loved reading the play as well. The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store by James McBride. Eccentric, larger than life, vividly drawn characters and entertaining in the spirit of his Deacon King Kong. Beautiful and emotionally moving and meaningful in the spirit of his memoir, The Color of Water. Also at times repugnant and terrifying, although at the end hopeful, really great. Classic James McBride. The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Talk about terrifying. It's a classic post-apocalyptic novel. Beautifully written. I read it to commemorate McCarthy's recent passing and in anticipation of a podcast discussion with a Woodstock friend, David Gordon. Cutting for Stone by Abraham Verghese. Gorgeously written, tear-drenched pages. Read it in advance of tackling the author's new novel, the Covenant of Water for the November Golden Notebook Book Club. Small Mercies by Dennis Lehan. Provocative, repulsive, infuriating. Vivid characters. A well-told and important story about the reaction to a 1974 federal court order requiring the busing of children to integrate the Boston public schools and of the racism, poverty, addiction, crime, fear, hatred, ignorance and exploitation of the South Boston community. A timely story, unfortunately, and a heartbreakingly difficult but great read. Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami. A story that is fast moving, sometimes dreamy, and quite surreal throughout. The characters are vivid and appealing. My friend Jim Finnegan has said for many years that Murakami should be awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. Maybe. Fire on the Straw, Notes on Inventing a Life by Nick Lyons. 
a beautiful as well as anguished memoir by writer, publisher, legendary fly fisherman, and my podcast guest of a few years ago, Nick Lyons. Very moving. The Candy House by Jennifer Egan. I was deeply absorbed from the outset. I felt as if I had a puzzle or a mystery to solve. I loved seeing goon squatters as they reappeared in Candy House. Egan is brilliant. It was a heck of a summer of reading. Now for our guest today. Carol and I walked up the road a few weeks ago to visit the open studios of the Artists in Residence program at Woodstock's Birdcliff Arts Colony. The Birdcliff Arts Colony was founded in 1903 by Ralph Whitehead, the son of a wealthy mill owner from Yorkshire, England. Whitehead was influenced by utopian ideas when he studied at Oxford and he developed an enduring vision to found his own Brotherhood of Artists community. The Artists in Residence program is one of the many Birdcliff programs today that carry on Whitehead's legacy. Carol and I saw some really interesting work at the Open Studios and were really struck by an outdoor installation by my guest today, artist Kelly O'Brien. Welcome to the podcast, Kelly. Thank you, Howard. Really happy to be here. Kelly's a visual artist, working mainly in sculpture and installation. Kelly has quite a few awards, grants, and residencies, and she exhibits her work around the world. Kelly, you mentioned when we met that your installation, which is called Ectopia Conversation, was influenced by a 1970s novel about an ecological utopia. The novel is Ecotopia, The Notebooks and Reports of William Weston, and it's by Ernest Kallenbach. The novel was originally published in 1975 by the author. It was a cult novel at the outset, and over the years became required reading as environmental studies took off. As I understand it, Ecotopia describes a utopian world created by the secession in 1980 of Oregon, Washington, and Northern California from the United States. The novel takes place in 1999 when a New York newspaper reporter becomes the first American visitor since Ecotopia's founding. The story is told through the reporter's articles and diary entries about his experience in a country governed by eco-friendly principles and, who knew this would ever happen, a female president. Ecotopia's citizens recycle almost everything. They travel mostly by public transportation, if not walking or taking bicycles, which sit in public places available to be borrowed at will. Automobiles are still around, but are limited to electric vehicles. Anything that can't be reused is banned, and no concealed weapons are permitted. A 2008 New York Times review called Ecotopia the novel that predicted Portland. I have not read Ecotopia, although I've read many of the reviews and listened to several YouTube discussions of the book. Many say that it's pretty clunky. I'd love you to provide your impressions of the book, but more importantly, discuss, if you would, the connection between the book and the art, your installation at Berkeley. Thanks, Howard. Uh, well, I would agree that the book is pretty clunky, and um, I won't spend time delving into that, except that it's very uh, world-building. So Kallenbach sort of goes through all the aspects of a contemporary society and goes into them in great depth and detail about how they work in ecotopia. And 
he could be talking about things that are starting to evolve today. So anything from uh, recycling to um, transportation systems to sewage, um, how politics are managed, you know, everything about society is uh, sort of peeled back and described in in great detail. And I, I was constantly thinking how prescient he, he was and how I could see that he inspired a lot of contemporary thinkers in this space. I'm relatively new to this sort of green literature, but I during the pandemic, I gobbled up, I think, all of Ken Stanley Robinson's work. Oh, I don't and, know. I don't know him. What, what, uh, what has he written? So Ken Stanley Robinson has, he is the utopian sort of sci-fi writer. Uh, and uh, he was, I think he was very inspired by Kallenbach's work, oh, by, wow. by this book in particular. Um, but he's gone on to win every prize you can win in sci-fi fiction. Wow. And all of his work is about the U.S., but also space. And um, he has a series of really long novels that are fascinating. And I think during the pandemic, I was so... I was so hungry for any vision of hope, whether yeah. it was a fantasy or lucid hope or, uh, you know, kind of productive hope, whatever that was, that was, I was interested in, in that kind of thinking and, and feeling. So I, I spent a lot of time with his novels during the pandemic. Yeah. So back to Kallenbach and Ecotopia. Um, I picked this book up because I was looking for titles for this installation that I just made. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And one way that I look for titles is, I, of course, do searches on the web, but I pull a lot from what I'm reading. So I brought, as you can see, I brought my pile of books that I've been looking at this summer. And as I read a book, I have a spreadsheet that I drop sentences into that eventually can become titles for work. Oh. And I reference who the author is, what page it's on, what context it's in, so that I can go back then and talk about where that title came from and not only give credit to the originator, but make the connection to it and the thinking behind my work. So your work came first. That's one. The work came first. Yeah. Yeah. The work came first. And I was thinking, I'd been thinking a lot about utopias living at Birdcliff because it's, it was founded originally as, as a utopia. And then also kind of questioning or critiquing the idea of a utopia, um, even as idyllic and healing as a summering bird cliff has felt. And I can tell you more about that um, in a minute. It's not perfect. No utopia is perfect, right? It's more of an aspirational um, idea. And that was certainly the, the case for the founders of bird cliff. I mean, they, so the founder that you mentioned died relatively young. I think he was in his forties maybe having considered it a failure because it didn't quite live up to his vision of what he thought he could create. And yet Birdcliff lives on. It's 120 years old. It's one of the oldest continuous artist residencies in the U.S. And by many definitions, it's, it's reached a lot of the original objectives. My lived experience in this utopia is realistic and that's what I was interested in looking at through the piece I made, the installation. So, I did. so um, the installation came before the book. When did your interest in Birdcliff come as it relates to the installation? So, Birdcliff came about because my husband Ian and I were looking for uh, a new home, having just moved from being overseas for 12 years. We were in Germany and then we were in the UK and we moved back to the US 
in uh, December, this past December, and we were living with family for the first five months of the year. And we were using um, family home in Pennsylvania as a base. And then we were coming up here to Hudson Valley because Ian's family's in Boston. My family's in Pennsylvania and DC. And so we wanted to be semi in between. We also were interested in um, the Buddha belt. My husband's a practicing (laughs) Buddhist. (laughs) And I was interested in the contemporary art scene that was tied to New York City. And when you say the Buddha belt, do you mean Sullivan County or do you mean the Buddhist retreats up here? The up and down the Hudson Valley. Yeah, the entire. Great. The The Buddha belt. I love that. Yeah. So we decided to look at Hudson Valley and we looked in Woodstock and he was on a house hunting trip on his own here and drove by the signs for Birdcliff. And he texts me and he says, have you ever heard of this Birdcliff place? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, no, but I quickly looked it up and it turned out that it offered, you know, I was looking for places to maybe land once I got here. And so I looked, one thing led to another. I saw that they had artist residencies I thought, okay, a one-month artist residency would be a nice way to kick off um, my experience here in the Hudson Valley. And then, as the house hunting process drew, drew on, it, it was it was quite. Um, it just took a while for us to find the right place. And somehow, I um, sold the idea that I should be in residence here for five months. <laughs> <laughs> so, sold it to your husband, or sold it to, to, to Berkeley? So, well, to my husband first. Um, <laughs> And I, I um, was like, well, you know, we're looking up there. So by then we should have our home and I could just commute on the weekends. And, you know, it, it would work out well because a place for me to work won't be up and running right off the bat. And so for me to not interrupt my art practice and to have a productive year and not have this big gaping hole in it. And for my own mental health, it would be really good if I could work this out. So I applied, I got accepted, I got offered um, a Pollock Grasner grant to help fund it. And I've been here since May. That's amazing. What what was the grant that you received? Pollock Krasner Foundation. They are um, major supporters for Birdcliff. And so Birdcliff then turns around and offers grant money to certain artists that, you know. You look mentally healthy. You sound mentally healthy. I am so, mentally so, healthy. So it worked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I got to tell you, um, this has been years of mini traumas. I know we use the T word loosely in the U.S., but mini traumas between the pandemic, which we all experienced. Yeah. Lost my father. Oh, sorry. Trump was elected. Brexit happened. I lost a university friend to cancer. Like all these things oh, happened yeah. very, you know, kind of in the same yeah. stretch of time. Yeah. And I didn't quite realize I needed some cellular level healing, which is what's happened this summer. It's been quite interesting. So Birdcliff gave that to you. Yeah. The utopia, the forest bathing, the making, you know, being really immersed in my art for five months. Well, so before you get back to your art and the book, talk more about Birdcliff and the artist in residency and and what you benefited from. It sounds fascinating. Well, it's so it, it's set up for an artist to do what she wants, he or she wants. And there's a monthly cohort that rotates in every month of about 12 artists, I guess, maybe eight artists. I'm not sure how many there are, but let's say 10. And they are there April, May, no, May, June, July, August, September. So there's, but I think there's only four co- cohorts that come through every summer and they, they are a monthly ro- rotating group. And then there are cottage artists, which I am, and we are there for the duration of the season. 
And so I've, I moved in end of April when it was freezing cold, no heat, you know, bundled up and thinking I made a mistake (laughs) (laughs) to, um, you know, almost five months later. And this place has really gotten under my skin and it's allowed me to completely be in the zone in a way that you just don't get when you're out kind of juggling the real world. And this is the real world, you know, don't get me wrong. I have a day job that is commissioned based work for the hotel industry. So I've been, that's been sort of going on in the background, but to be able to unplug and immerse in this environment, which is full of wildlife that you hear through the screen doors and Bambi comes up and puts her nose against the door and chipmunks are running around and it's, it's for the kind of work I do, which is very eco-focused work. It is, it is a utopia. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. So now talk about the work. Yeah. So this work, which is, I would say, um, environmentally focused work is something that came out of the pandemic as well. I did my MFA, which is a master of fine arts in the UK when we lived there. And I was working, I was, I was responding to all of the, the mini traumas I told you about earlier. And my life felt like it was upside down and I didn't understand. I was grieving. I was angry. I was shattered. So I thought an MFA could help me make sense of what was happening or at least find a visual vocabulary to start expressing it. And so during my degree, I made a lot of sculpture um, that was from glass and paper and thread and it fell and it broke and it was very precarious and fragile and impermanent. And it was expressing all the things that I wanted to express. And then I graduated February of 2020, the pandemic, the world shut down March of 2020. And where were you? We were in the UK. In the UK, yeah. So I lost access to all of those workshops that I was working with, the hot glass and the steel and, you know, kind of the, um, the places that I needed to be to make that kind of work. So like many people, we had the fortune of being in a very rural environment. We lived in the English countryside and I immersed myself in the English countryside and took great solace from the natural world and fell deeply in love with the meadows and the wildflowers and all the creatures that were, you know, that I was seeing on my daily walks. And I had a, a, basically a climate awakening and realized that I had to stop using materials with such large carbon footprints. So I completely transformed my practice and started looking for non-harmful materials to make my sculpture worth. And that's when I discovered biomaterials and um, biocomposites, which are largely plant-based, biodegradable, completely recyclable materials. And that's all I work with now. Right. And, and the, the installation at Birdcliff, I think you used the word mycelium. Yeah. Is that right? It's cast mycelium, which is mushroom roots. And it is, um, I discovered this when I was looking at the, um, the construction industry because the building and construction industries are one of the most polluting causes, the, the huge carbon footprints on the planet. And so people in that space are looking for innovations that will fi- help fix the problem, that will change that. And they're using things like biocomposites. So hempcrete, which is um, like a concrete made with hemp, chopped hemp. Um, all, all kinds of things are happening in that space. That's what this book is about. Um, what, what is that one called? Uh, it's called Material Cultures, Material Reform. Wow. And it's looking at all the basic materials that are used in construction and how they can be re 
reinvented basically. So you're an industrialist. <laughs> industrialist? I never, I never would have used that word, but I'm, I'm interested in, um, well, the themes that I have wor been working with since the beginning, even with the glass and steel were, um, care and repair. Like how do we care and repair what's been broken or, or what's being, what's being damaged? So the talk, talk about the specific installation uh, at Birdcliff, and, right. and I'll have pictures of that installation on my website, but go ahead. So it's called Ecotopia Conversation, and it is a response to the stone, stacked stone plinth ruins that are in the front of the main residence building, which is called Valletta. And Valletta was built in 1902-03 as part of the original colony. And there used to be a larger front porch that wrapped around the entire front of that building. Now there's a partial front porch. Um, and then the rest of that ruin is what you see in these stone plinths. And they're basically dry stack stones. And there's a series of, I don't know, seven of them. So I took three of them that were kind of in this picturesque corner of the building and on the front of the building. And I've extended them visually by making my own mycelium cast slabs. And I've used dry stacking techniques to mimic and extend these plinths upward. And so these are basically mushroom colored <laughs> um, square and rectangle cubes that are, um, mimicking this idea of a ruin. And I've used locally sourced uh, sheep's wool to kind of tuck in, uh, sort of expressing a bit of tenderness in the cracks. And there's critters that have moved in and you, there's <laughs> spiders and crickets and all kinds of little creatures that have moved into the installation that every time I check on it, someone else has moved in. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's great. So, And you have another installation. Is it along the same theme? So the next one I'm doing will be for the um, the last open studios of the season, which is later this month, September 23rd. And I'm doing a gift for birds is the working title. And I am, uh, there's a meadow right outside my cottage. And I'm, so I'm building um, a small utopian habitat for birds. Uh, and I'm using mycelium, these cast mycelium um, forms that I've made to make uh, birdhouses that are being stitched into tree branches. Wow. And then, um, there's going to be a field of little bells below it, um, to scare off any deer or bears or whatever that might try and get in there and, and disrupt it. Um, I, I hope that's effective. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's a, there's an artist by the name of Christian Boltansky. Um, I think he, I don't know if he's French, but he's, he's based in France. And he did an installation called Animitas. He's done them all over the world with these bells. And so I'm, I'm borrowing from his idea, but I'm then taking, taking beyond, because I was looking for a, a bear preventer because we have bears yeah, and we do. We do. I wanted to put um, food in there for the birds. So I'm going to put like oranges and apples and things like that up high on skewers in the tree branches, but it could attract some wildlife. Oh, it could. So I needed something that when the wind blows or when something is walking, you know, around the base of these um, branches that I'm installing uh, that, that, you know, the bells might scare them off. 
that, that could happen. <laughs> yeah, I talked to the uh, to Anna, the uh, the director of the residency, and initially I thought maybe I could do some sort of crazy electric fence, yeah. and then we decided that wasn't the message I wanted to send. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and then I thought, well, maybe I could do something that's more aesthetically of the kind of work I do, which is this gentle yeah, sort yeah. of um, care. You know, well, it'll be interesting to see if it works. And, yeah, and it may well work. Well, and she said she's like, why not embrace the chaos? See what yeah, happens. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah so yeah, that's what we're yeah, gonna do. Yeah. yeah. Now I've only just met Anna really once, but I could see her saying that. Yeah. Yeah, embrace the chaos. Yeah. So uh, come back to the book just for a moment. Um, so the book came after the idea for the uh, current installation. But then, so you actually read the book afterwards. I did. I read the book because the title was the eco, the, the 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 word ecotopia really caught my attention. I thought this yeah. is perfect. This is yeah. exactly what I'm looking for. And I didn't quite know what an ecotopia conversation would be, which I think is what we're having right yeah, now. Yeah, that's exactly right. And yeah. when I so when I came up with the title ecotopia conversation, I said I don't know how that's going to happen or what that is, but I love that. So that's what I grabbed. Yeah. It's amazing. And you're it right. is. That's what we're having right now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm delighted yeah, actually. It's pretty amazing. Um, I think I channeled it or something or we channeled uh, uh, it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then I read the book and I listened to all the podcasts and all the YouTube conversations about how not well written the book was. Nonetheless, I think that the parallels or the thing that's interesting for me is having lived in Germany and the UK, which are way far more left politically than, than we are here. I had a taste of uh, some of the things that he's talking about in the book. And when we first moved to Germany 12 years ago, I had to learn how to recycle like on a major level. Like we had multiple bins in the kitchen marked with different things and you could not put the wrong thing in the wrong bin. And it was, it was recycling on a whole other level that I, wasn't even aware existed. And this was the same for healthcare. You know, there were spas you could go to in the Alps to recover from a certain procedure. The nurses were all gorgeous. The, you know, like <laughs> it was this, this lifestyle that I didn't even know existed. Um, same thing with driving. Like you, you do not dare have a sip of alcohol and get in a car. Like it just isn't done. Certainly not done in the UK either. You plan ahead. You, you hire a bus, you hire whatever it is, your group goes out. You, so there are nobody, you know, people don't own guns or if you do, they're locked away in a safe and, you know, in a, in a way that is, um, not, not even considered here. So it's the, 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 there are very real ways of living out there beyond the U S um, that are, are, described in this book. Prescient, as you said. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. And then the thing that was so interesting, so the, the, the main um, journalist in the book, you know, he comes from New York city and goes to Ecotopia and he decides not to go back. Right. So he, he comes from New York city uh, on a journalist assignment. For six weeks. For six weeks to report on what's going on in this secessionist country. Exactly. And then he gets sucked in, never comes back. Well, his values change. Yeah. And this is the thing that happened to me living in Europe. Like my values have really changed. I've, I was already left of center for sure, but I've gone much further left of center and coming back here, I've been dealing with culture shock. Um, I've been really not struggling. I'm past that. But initially I thought maybe we made a mistake because I wasn't sure I could. You mean coming back? Yeah. Coming back to the U S yeah. 
So it, it was really, I mean, we came back for good reasons. We came back because of aging parents. We were just tired of being so far from loved ones, you know, so that eventually there yeah. are really good reasons to return. The economy was another reason. The UK economy is, is struggling. Um, so it's not, we're not second guessing that, but initially for all of the cultural and sort of systemic reasons and issues that we're talking about that are themes in this book, um, I struggled. Yeah. yeah. Well, as you said earlier, and I think Colin Bach has said about his utopia, nothing's perfect. Right. Yeah. Right. And he, and he's very clear in the book. I mean, he, in his, uh, part of the structure of the book is he uses a personal journal to reflect right. on what, how he's feeling about things. And he, d he questions a lot about ecotopia. And so, I mean, the bottom line is nothing's perfect, right? Yeah. 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 But it's good to have a North star. Yeah. Uh, something to aim for. Yeah. So I remember reading in college, um, a book called the greening of America. So I was in college in the late 1960s okay. and uh and i was carol and i were at the first uh, earth day march wow. in boston oh that's cool so, so we do go that far back and do and have that interest but th this book and everything you've said about it, it takes it another step for uh at least one step many steps further and he would have been writing it at about that time yeah, it was he was published in 75. He, right? he was, and he, he was um, on the staff of, he was a editor, a copywriter for UC's, one of their, um, one of their publications at University right. of California, Berkeley. And so he was immersed in, certainly immersed at Berkeley in all of that. And then he used his connections, his academic and sort of scientific connections to get the technical aspects, I guess, the, the content of the book accurate. Right. Um, so he was able to tap into really, I think, innovative thinking at that time. Prescient. So he, so when I think of someone as prescient, I think of them not only as brilliant, but, um, but a bit of an artist, Yeah. you know, a futurist and an artist. Yeah. Have you listened to any of the interviews that he gave then later? No, no, I have not. There's, have there, he did a, um, a second book called Ecotopia Emerging. Yes. And it was a prequel. Right, 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 right. Which I haven't read yet, but I think I might. So I, I, on one of the podcasts I listened to, there was a reference to that. And it's interesting, of course, that it was published later, but it's a prequel. Right. But that does sound interesting. Why did the secession take place? What drove it? And I, I gather there were economic problems in America, in the United States, and that was part of what led to the breakoff. Yeah, well, and the, so the book, you know, I mean... Today we talk about states seceding, you know, in a yeah. joking way, but yeah, yeah. not so joking, Yeah, you know, right. and that's, that's, I, you know, he just played it out to yeah. its, I don't know, logical conclusion. So as clunky as people say the book is, it sounds like a great novel. Uh, yeah, I'm glad I read it. Yeah. I'm glad I read it. And um, I'm glad actually for the opportunity to talk about it with you because it made me learn a lot more about Kallenbach, about the ideas about the critique of it. So yeah. I actually, as sort of not a great book it, as it is, I actually enjoyed this book maybe more than, in you know, others in a long time. Well, as you said, an ecotopia conversation. Yeah. Yeah, so thank you. Let me, let me ask you this um, about other books. I think you said, I talked to everybody about books. I think you said you're passionate about books. Of course, yeah. So what are you reading? What are you passionate about? Well, I'm, so the, the books I'm reading this summer really are around to inform the work I'm doing here. And I would say the, the one that has been most 
foundational for me is this book called Matters of Care and um, by Maria Puig de la Bella Casa. She's a philosopher based in the UK. She's French, um, but she is looking at um, the ethics of care in more than human systems. So she's going beyond people and humans, and she's looking at um, the whole sort of web that we are part of. Um, it's a fabulous book. So uh, uh, beyond humans, beyond animals? Beyond humans. So any kind of animals, wildlife, yes. invertebrates, right. anything, you know, that's not human. It's it's fantastic. <laughs> and then that led me to this book, which is called How to Be Animal. <laughs> and it is another really, it's a, um, Melanie Challenger is, she's a philosopher as well. And her premise is that because we are animals, we've, we've forgotten that we're animals. And she gives you all kinds of evidence about how we are animals, really. Um, if we think of ourselves as animals, maybe we will start to um, think of our peer animals in a, in a more even sort of equal way, as opposed to us being above them or superior yeah. to them. I'm feeling better about what I did on my walk this morning. There was a dead frog in the road and I moved him off the road. So, but go ahead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I'm, th those two books have been, um, pretty important to me this summer. And then this material cultures book I told you about, yeah. um, because I am very, I think for my, in my work, I'm trying to be really aware of the materials I use and how I make things and how I move them. So the materials I make can have a carbon impact or not. You know, they can, they can harm the planet or they can at least do no harm if not try to fix it. The thing with mycelium is that it has, it has um, antiviral properties. So it can actually heal the environment. Um, it can soak up toxins in the environment. It can eat plastic. It can... Um, soak up nuclear waste. I mean, it's a, it's a remedial. That's heavy duty. Material. And this all comes from mushrooms. Yeah. And so as a practical matter, how do you use mycelium to do any or all of those things? Well, it depends on like, for instance, I made a, a beehive last year uh, for wild bees and I made a big spherical uh, hollow shape with holes that the, so the bees could get in. And then I did smaller bee hotels, um, all made out of mycelium. And I used a specific strain of mycelium that has antiviral properties that um, help address colony collapse disorder, like the mites that that colony cl collapse, collapse disorder. Meaning, meaning bee colonies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So colony collapse collapse disorder. Yeah. Okay. So Paul Stamens, who is a um, mushroom expert in Washington state, maybe he lives in Ecotopia. I'm not sure, but he is, he's been doing this for decades. And so he's sort of the leader in this area of thinking around mycoremediation and um, mycology, um, mycelium and mushrooms as a healing force, as a, as a healing mechanism. You know, there are industrialists to use that word again, that yeah. are starting to use it um, in um, like for toxic spills, oil spills, um, nuclear waste. Um, in, it, in productive ways. Yeah, exactly. So that, so that, and that is the context in which I suggested you were an industrialist. There you go. Um, so before we get too further away from that, um, I mentioned to you before we started talking, Frank Burbrink, the uh, curator of reptiles and amphibians at the American Museum of Natural History. Yeah. He does something every year for the last two years uh, at my son's property in Shandaken that we all participate in 
called BioBlitz. Oh, wow. He brings curators, senior curators, and several of their staff who are PhDs or close to that uh, to camp out for a couple of days. Uh, and we bring from the Bronx, the group we work with, Renaissance Youth Center, we bring uh, kids uh, with the directors who have been training themselves for six months or so to be on the property and camp out. And they look for various species. They look for snakes and birds and fish and insects and bats and so on and so forth. And I wonder if any, either an installation or some collaboration with what you're doing might be of interest. It sounds really fantastic. Yeah. yeah I'd love to learn more about yeah, that. I mean, I could see an installation. I could see getting the kids involved in an installation. Yeah, right. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah. Well, well, get you to the Bronx and uh, <laughs> we'll sort that out. So there, there are more books though. Well, uh, so this book's called The Mushroom at the End of the World. <laughs> and um, Anna Lauenhaupt Singh, um, she's in the Pacific Northwest as well. There's a theme here, yeah. which I didn't realize before I started talking to you. Um, and this is about, um, so the subtitle of this is On the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins. Wow, in Capitalist Ruins. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And she, she's looking at this whole, it's a brilliantly written book, actually. It's one of those books where you kind of need to read it a few times because it's super intense. Um, she's looking at a particular type of mushroom that's used almost as a, a mode of um, economic trade. So, and there's this whole um, society of mushroom gatherers and traders and buyers. And what they're doing is they're, they're, there's a, the, it's a, it's a, specific mushroom that grows in the Pacific Northwest that is um, highly sought after in Japan. And so it's this whole system oh, wow. of getting these yeah, mushrooms yeah. collected and uh, traded to Japan. Yeah. And then it, it sort of unpicks capitalism and how this works um, in wow. society. Yeah. Have you, do you pick mushrooms? I don't. I don't. So. Do uh, you? No. So when we lived in West Shokan, once or maybe a couple of times, we went on mushroom walks with a mushroom expert. Mm -hmm. He scared the hell out of us. <laughs> he educated us. So this is all to his credit. Yeah. But when he picks a mushroom that he thinks he might eat, he brings it home. He studies it. He takes pictures and he checks with two, at least two other people. I, I'm not doing those things. So I'm not dining on what I pick up in. Yeah. It's, it's big in Germany. Like yeah. there's like mushroom mafia and, you know, like territories and <laughs> people are serious about their mushrooms there. Um, and I know that there's a lot of mushrooms here. You see them yeah. you know, yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Um, but I'm not inspired necessarily to. Yeah. I love it. mushrooms, but yeah. yeah, that's what Adam's market is. Yeah, for. Yeah. Now I've grown them as part yeah, of my different. research uh -huh. around using mycelium. I've grown them in uh, the bathtub and they're delicious <laughs> and harvested these beautiful blue oyster mushrooms and sauteed them up and ate them in omelets. Oh, really? and, yeah. Fantastic. That's great research. Yeah. It's <laughs> very good. Uh, so there's another book, I think. There's one more book. Um, and this I read, uh, I think first when I first landed here, it's called changes in the land. It was written in 1982, I think. So the title is a little un PC, but it's called Indians, Colonists, and the Ecology of New England. And it's about what happened when the colonists came to hmm. North America and the what happened to the Native Americans and yeah. the land 
And it's, it's a fascinating read, actually. It's a really good grounding sort of history to what we're seeing here. And it led me to the stone walls because the stone walls happened when they started clearing the land, deforestation and clearing the lands for agriculture. So all these stone walls that we see throughout New York and New England um, were farmland. They were fields. Um, and they delineated who owned which property. Exactly. Which the Native Americans didn't even have that concept. Like they, they weren't even so they thinking were, about ownership. They were, so they were socialists. <laughs> more than that. Yeah, right. More than that is right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the... Yeah. So anyway, these stone walls, I, I found them fascinating. I didn't understand why they were running through like our new, our new property down, you know, in Sullivan County and where they came from and they made no sense. Um, so anyway, this book helped orient me to the origins of, of some of those. That is a great list of books. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank yeah. It's you. been a, it's been a good summer. <laughs> yeah, right. So I said I had a good summer. You had a great summer. That's wonderful. Well, thank you very much. This was just terrific. Thank, thank you. you. Th thank you for inviting me. I was delighted and didn't realize how much there was to talk about. <laughs> there was. More information about our guest today and about the Birdcliff Arts Colony can be found on our website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com which also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, and my bookmark. Melanie, who has designed additional swag, provides overall creative direction. Ben and Eden and Catherine provide additional inspiration and support. And of course, Carol is my muse. Four-year-old Jake remains a delight beyond words and continues to encourage the podcast, as does Jake's sweet, energetic, wisecracking, and equally delightful two-year-old cousin, Francesca, who always likes to tell me what she's reading. Sweet baby Mila joined the podcast production intern class two months ago, and the three grandloves are recruiting for additional help before year-end. Thanks to the great Spotify team for making it free and easy to create the podcast, Thanks as well to A.J. Falari, who is working on the editing with me. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments, either directly on the podcast or at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time.